everyone. Welcome to Eagleonomics, a podcast about everything economics, brought to you by the BC Economics Association. I'm your host, Martin, and today we are joined by another member of the executive board, Sammy Wood. Thanks for having me, Martin. I'm really excited to be here today. To our listeners, it's our goal that this podcast will entertain you as we delve into the fascinating and helpful economic discussions with different BC professors. Today, we are here with Professor Jeff Sanzenbacher. Dr. Sanzenbacher originally majored in economics and mathematics at St. Mary College of Maryland before becoming a double eagle by receiving his master's and PhD at Boston College. Now, he teaches several courses here and is a fan favorite for the econometrics course. Recently, he released a book called The Six Facts That Matter, Understanding Inequality in the United States. And we are very lucky to have him on to speak about it. Thank you for coming in, Professor. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, we just wanted to give you a little bit of an opportunity. First of all, did we introduce you correctly? Correctly, indeed, yeah. Anything Perfect. you would like to add? or No, not no. at all. I think you, you nailed it. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. We wanted to give you an opportunity to come on and uh, maybe talk a little bit about your new book. Yeah. Uh, we There were some people who were interested in learning more about it, sort of uh, what are the facts, uh, like what are people saying about the book, what's being discussed, what was your thought while writing it. Yeah. stuff like that and um yeah what inspired you to write this book it sounds great so i've been teaching this class here at bc called the economics of inequality for you know for about eight years now which is amazing and um as i taught it i realized there really wasn't a book that i thought kind of did a good job covering all the bases there were some really good books that went into a lot of depth on certain topics but i was really interested in kind of writing a book that conveyed all the things I was trying to teach in the class. And what I realized was the class was really built around six broad trends that I saw happening in the economy. And so the six were that if you look at middle-class wages um, and you focus on men, for whom not a lot's changed over the last four decades as far as their education and that kind of thing, you saw their wages were pretty flat in real terms. So it was kind of the stagnation they were experiencing. The second fact is that women, their wages caught up to men a lot from this, from like the 70s until the early 2000s, but they've been kind of stuck at this 80 cents on the dollar mark for about 20 years now. The third fact was that marriage is really declining in the U.S., and, and those first, the first fact especially has a lot to do with that. Men are struggling, and, and a lot of times men want to be a breadwinner, and they don't want to get married if they're not earning a lot of money. Um, the fourth fact is that the racial wage gap has been stuck for the last 40 years. There's, believe it or not, like the, the racial wage gap hasn't closed at all since 1975. So it was, wow. you know, black men made 25% what white men make in 1975, and that's exactly the same now. Black women have actually lost ground. Um, the fifth fact is that very, very rich people are doing very, very well. Um, if you look at most of the economic growth, or a lot of economic growth has gone to like the top 1%. Yeah. And the very last fact of the six is that there's a strong correlation between parents' income and children's income, and thinking about why that happens, and should we be concerned about that? So those are the six facts, and I just hadn't seen a book that kind of covered all those. And I really wanted to write something that anyone could understand. So you didn't need to be an economics major at an awesome school like BC. <laughs> you could um, really be someone anywhere with, you know, as long as you were interested in the topic, you could read the book and learn something. That's really awesome. Yeah. And so you sort of condensed it down to six facts. Out of curiosity, were there any that didn't make the list or? Uh, no, I think like, yeah, there was no like seventh fact that I kind of really wanted to write about that didn't get in there. I felt like this did a good job of like conveying what I was thinking about. I think there are other topics of interest, you know, certainly I focus on kind of black versus white, whereas there's a lot of interest in things on immigration, 
Um, and, and I just I don't know quite as much about that. And and the trends are so different because you know if you think about like the Hispanic population. Well, a lot's changed in forty years. You had kind of initial people coming, then second generation, and so a lot's changed. And I just didn't know exactly how to talk about that. Um, certainly, there are issues around like Asian discrimination that have come up very recently. And um, those are just things that I felt a little less comfortable writing about that didn't know as much about. So these are the six that I thought kind of felt really comfortable writing about. Yeah. So when you go about, like, I guess, studying this sort of thing, how do you, like, focus between cor correlation versus causation as an economist? And this is more of a general question. Yeah. I mean, with a lot of these, so a lot of these topics, you know, what the book really does first, it just, like, sets out to describe, like, what's happened. Um, and then what I do is I really lean hard on on studies from economists I trust to kind of think about what are the causes of these things. And so w when I write a book like this, a lot of a book like this anyway is based on other other people's research, the people that I kind of trust. And so, you know, I always ask myself, like the big thing I ask myself is like, how have they determined this is causal and not just not just kind of a correlation they're seeing? And so, for example, I talk in my book about how trade has tended to be bad for middle-income men. And to, to look at that, you have to think, well, how can we know that caused it? There's so many other things changing in the world aside from just trade. So it could be any of those things. And so there's a, a set of authors that I rely on um, uh, led by David Otter. And one of the things that he looks at is what happened as trade with China really exploded very, very quickly? What happened in places that were specifically competing with China? So basically saying, okay. look, in some places, middle-income workers weren't competing with China, and in some places they were. Did workers in places that were competing struggle more than in places that weren't, kind of looking at similar kinds of workers? And so that kind of work, I think, takes advantage of this kind of shock to the system of China all of a sudden really, really competing a lot more than it did just a decade ago to try to identify a causal effect. And so, you know, really trying to think about how is the author, what variance is the author exploiting, how is the author trying to control for things, and try to bring things where I think I trust this person to do kind of a good job with causality and only report on those kind of things. So, you know, and in some cases it's, it's actually really quite difficult. So when you talk about, like, discrimination against black workers or against women, um, finding studies that do a good job of that are hard because discrimination is like a residual. If you remember mm -hmm. econometrics, it's like what's left over. So that means you've got to control for everything else, and it's really hard to do that. So um, try to really pick studies carefully when it comes to things like that. That's awesome. I love due diligence, for yeah, sure. Yeah, trying. <laughs> trying. Yeah, I guess as I was reading through the six facts, number three, the decline of marriage, I'm just really curious how that relates to understanding inequality. Yeah, one of the, one of the things people talk about a lot is like um, household income. So if you think about, you know, we talk about wages and salary a lot, but what really determines how well off someone is like how much income is in their household. So, you know, if, if I weren't working at all and my wife were making a million dollars, like you wouldn't call me, I'd be happy, first of all, <laughs> and, and you wouldn't call me poor, right, even though I'm not making any money. And so household income really matters. Um, and you would think that with women working so much more, women, you know, married women especially, in the 1970s, only about half of married women worked, and they didn't make very much money. Um, today it's more like 75% of married women, so it's increased by about half. And they make a lot more money than they used to. And so you'd think, well, aren't most households a married couple, and now they both work, and so aren't they making more? And if you look, you haven't seen that. So if you look at the typical middle-income household, their wages have probably, their income, sorry, have grown by about 20%. Mm -hmm. And the economy has doubled 
So you have this middle-income household. Their income's only gone up by 20%, but the entire economy's doubled. So like, where did that all go? And, and part of it is that like the middle-income man and the middle-income woman, their incomes haven't grown that fast because it's all going to the top. But then part of it is there aren't as many two-earner couples as there used to be. And so, you know, if you looked in 1975, about 80% of college-educated people and about 85% of people without a bachelor's degree were married. Today, those numbers are about 60% for college-educated people and about 50% for people with a high school degree. Or, or wow. Less. So, like, marriage has dropped by about, you know, by, you know, nearly 50% for people without a college degree. Um, and that means there's fewer two-earner households. And so, you know, if you look at a graph of household income, you'd say, well— it's kind of interesting, but, you know, it looks like it's going up a little bit. But really, it's kind of shocking. It hasn't gone up by more. And the reason is, that, like, there, there's just so much less marriage than there used to be. Um, and the reasons for that, you know, are, um, are, are, are complicated. You know, part of it is that men are struggling. Part of it is that, like, what marriage means is a lot different. You know, think about marriage used to be like, oh, we'll get married, and the man will work, and the, the woman will stay in the home, and they'll each have their own jobs. And, and that makes marriage kind of like, if women can't work, then women's very valuable to women. And if men don't like to do housework, women's very, is very valuable for them. But that's kind of changed. You know, we, we, we don't have that kind of division of labor so much anymore. And so both people could work, but both people also kind of need marriage less in a sense than they used to. Gotcha. Um, and on top of that, a lot of men kind of have this idea of what they want. <laughs> they want to be the breadwinner. And that idea really, I think, does hold them back in terms of getting married sometimes. Wow. So, th so it's like, it marriage has become less important in terms. Would you say, would you say it's become less important in an economic sense? Like, I, I think in some ways, yeah. I mean, I think certainly, you know, if you think back in like 1900, it took a really long time to cook. It took a really <laughs> long time to do laundry. It took a really long time to, you know, to clean. There was no vacuums. There were no microwaves. There was there was no um, no dishwasher. There was no laundry machine. So like, someone had to spend a lot of time doing that kind of work. Um, Nowadays, we have all those things. So you look at the amount of time like households spend on housework. It's, it's probably dropped by about 30%. So we don't need someone to do all that. Um, and that person can therefore work in the labor market. So it kind of frees up that. But it also does mean we don't need to specialize as much as we used to. So you see men specialized in the labor markets, women specialized in the home. And I'm not saying that's like a good thing. That just was how it was. That's kind of change. And that, that change is kind of the need for marriage right off the bat. I do think marriage is actually more important in some ways, though. Um, Why is that? You know, you think about, you look at the last, like, 40 years. If, if you looked at, like, how much a college-educated person made back in, like, 1975 compared to a high school-educated person, it was probably only, like, 30% more. So now it's, it. now it's, like, yeah, now oh, it's, like, 70% okay. more. Wow. Looked like a grad degree, right, having a, having a PhD. It used to be about 40% more than someone with a high school degree. Now it's 140% more. And so really it worth it. Yeah, it's really <laughs> worth it. Yes, yeah, see, it's good. You know, you guys are paying the good money, but it's totally worth it. Um, it is worth it. But if you if you think about like why that makes marriage important is like if if you're a parent and you you want your kids to have access to a college education, it takes a lot of time on parents' part. Takes a lot of money, and so having two people that can work becomes really important. Um, and, it, and one of the reasons that economists think that college-educated people are, are marrying more, are, are marrying still more, are now marrying more often than high school-educated people, it used to be the reverse, is that they think that those people really want their kids to go to college. And so they kind of know, like, oh, I need two people. I need two people here to spend time with a kid. I need two people here to put money in. So we should get married and guarantee there are two people here for a while. Because marriage really is, at this point, 
more of a commitment device. You kind of are making yeah. it really hard to break up. Um, <laughs> that's like how I think about marriage. This is not not a good wedding card, um, <laughs> but like it makes it really hard to break up. And so if you think like we need to make sure that we invest as much in our kids as possible, we need to make sure two of us are here for a long time. Like, well, let's make it legally binding so that we're both here. And and some people are thinking maybe that's less true for people with less education, not because they're not smart or whatever, but just because they maybe don't put as much value on it for whatever reason. Um, it's kind of a new idea, but it's something people are, are thinking about. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it seems like there's kind of this overlap between like some of the different facts. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Like one of the reasons they go in that order, and I always tell people, it's like not like I think the racial income gap is the fourth most important fact. <laughs> it's like that would be bad. Um, I don't think that. I think it's a very important <laughs> fact. They're all equal in my mind. All the facts are, are equal. Um, I don't have a favorite. But like you need to understand why middle income workers are struggling if you want to understand why black workers are struggling, because black workers are much more likely to be in the middle than our white workers. So if automation is really hurting workers without a college degree, then it's hurting black workers more than white workers because they're less likely to have a college degree. Okay. If trade is really hurting people without a college degree, then trade hurts black people more than white people. And so once you kind of get to that idea, then it's easier to explain like why there's been no progress in the black income gap. If you think about like education, Black people are much more likely to have a college education than they were 40 years ago. Um, Do you have a percent on that? Yeah, or? so 40, 40 years ago, um, I think a black man was about 33% as likely to have a college degree as a white man. Today wow. it's 66%. So we've really okay. closed. That's gotten better. For black women, I think it was 50%. So they were doing better than black men. And now it's more like two-thirds again. So like both black men and women now, about 66% as likely to have a degree compared to a white person. So that's that's progress. The problem is, and this is like a little bit confusing, so I'll, I'll try to explain it. You guys just tell me if I do a horrible job. <laughs> um, it's that like, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're catching up in one way, but the 33% of people who still don't have a degree, like that gap is way more damaging than it used to be because you've got trade and automation and all these things kind of holding down their wages. So even though the, the, the people who now have a degree that wouldn't have had one in the past, that's, that's good for them. The people who don't, it's much more hurtful to them. And so you end up with, like, you're taking one step forward, basically, as you get more education, as that group gets more education. But then one step back is the people who are left behind are even further behind. And so you end up basically going nowhere. Um, and that's kind of where that is. Yeah. So do you think that you're, you're talking about, like, trade at sort of, like, being not good for the middle class? And, like, is, is that what you're – is that what I'm <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. I uh, – I think that trade certainly is not uniformly good for the middle class. So okay. so for higher income people, I would say trade is pretty uniformly good. Um, if you think about like how trade works, you know, pretty it's pretty simply. It's like you trade in the thing that you have in abundance. So okay. what the US has in abundance relative to other countries is hi a highly educated workforce. And so when it trades, it tends to trade in things that that highly educated workforce produces, technology, financial services, um, you know, education, higher education. We, we, we export a lot of higher ed, if you think about it. Those things are produced by highly high-income people. Um, and so high-income people get to, get to kind of an extra market. They, they gain from trade. Um, and then they also get access to cheap goods, so they gain from trade twice. Um, for middle-income people, they probably gain from the fact that there are cheaper goods because things are cheaper than they would be otherwise, and that's good. But they're also competing 
with workers in other countries where what they have is kind of a slightly less skilled labor force. And so if you have like a high school degree here, not to say you're less skilled, but you kind of like, that's what other countries have too. And so all of a sudden you're competing with that population. Um, and so your wages get driven down potentially. That's that whole there. like argument with like, we're exporting a lot, well like China and like it's taking yeah. up a lot of our- Manufacturing labor, base, yeah, manufacturing. Like that. Exactly. And so even though trade probably, like I'm sure that everybody enjoys the fact that we can have like, you know, raspberries in January, right? Like that's a <laughs> benefit of trade. And we all like that the, the clothing's a little cheaper than it would be. And, and those are probably all good things. But uh, but I think that there's the downside for middle and lower income people that really isn't there for higher income people who, who kind of get two benefits from trade. So I guess I, I, I hesitate to say it's bad just because I'm an economist and I have to like hedge everything. <laughs> so I would say more like it's like kind of, um, it, it has a good side and a bad side for middle and lower income people that probably it's just good for higher income people. So how guess. do you, as an economist, propose ideas on how to like compensate these middle and lower um, in, income people who are sort of adversely affected by this? Is there a way? Is there a way to... There aren't a lot of really easy ways i would say this yeah. is one of the you know one of the i ended up publishing this book myself like using what's called um uh, amazon direct publishing so i like i like edited the book publish it myself so that's um, really cool yeah. yeah it is cool but i did try to get a professional publisher and one of the critiques i got was like that it's they liked it and they're like it's interesting but also that like it, it's it's not the solutions are kind of complicated. It's, it's not like I'm like, you know what we need to do? This one thing, it'll fix everything. They're like, people like that. And I'm like, I just don't think that's quite true. It's very um, hard yeah. to... And I didn't want to like kind of, you know, I didn't really want to compromise what I thought was trying to be honest that this is kind of complicated. You know, certainly like people think of job training programs or, or helping people kind of retrain themselves and stuff like that. And, th and that's probably somewhat helpful. But a lot of the folks affected are people in their 40s and 50s. They have families, and they don't have tons of time or energy to, like, go and retrain themselves for what, what really was only going to be, like, five, ten years more working before retirement. So I think training, stuff like that, probably not bad. I don't think we did enough of that. And I think being kind of cognizant of the fact that, like, this trade will hurt some people and we should be prepared to help them learn new skills is, is a good idea. I don't think it's, like, a cure-all. Um, I think of things like, you know, something like the earned income tax credit. I don't know. If, do you guys know what the earned income tax credit is? I'm unaware yeah, of it. So, yeah. Well. The earned income tax credit is something that is really designed for, like, sing single parents. And what it does is when you start earning money, when you have very little earned income, it gives you a credit. So credit might be worth, like, you earn a dollar it gives you 50 cents more. So your first dollar earned is worth a dollar fifty. Oh, oh yeah, I think and I have And then it goes up yeah. to a point, and then the credit starts to fade away as you get higher income. And the credit fades away at like $45,000 of household income, which for a married couple is like basically probably means they're not gonna get it. And so I've always thought like this is a program that encourages people to work. It has that nice feature. Republicans like that. Liberals like that it gives people money to help them. Like everyone kind of could agree <laughs> on this. And it's a program you could expand to be like higher up the ladder and recognize that these middle-income households have been hurt by this and maybe we expand this credit up a little bit more. So that's that's a solution I think is possible. I think, um, and, and then I think things like uh, thinking creatively about the future and how we educate people and, 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 and really like, you know, trade's one thing, but there's also been this replacement of workers by automation. And so how do you train people to be good in a world that's gonna be automated so how do you how do you teach kids to be flexible or to be good with people or empathetic or good managers those are the skills that computers aren't very good at yet so how do you like kind of prepare people for that so i think that's a big part of it too is like thinking a little bit forward because i, I do think it's very hard to 
um, fix some of the issues with like trade that have already happened. It's like it's it's a little late. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. This is this reminds me of something we talked about. Uh, I talked about in my like high school class where I'm from Maine, and yeah. we have this. We brought up this example of the Millinocket man who's in his 40s, 50s, and essentially didn't go to high school and went right to working at the local paper mill. Yeah. And that paper mill left yep. when when and now we import like most of that paper I think from China and they sort of blame that the fact that the manufacturing plant has been moved but at right. the same time we still do have some mills in Maine but and those have lost a lot of jobs due to automation. Yeah. So it's this like weird thing of even if you brought the paper mills back right. they wouldn't be able to they wouldn't run the same way right i mean i think a big the other like i think there's like kind of a two things that have really happened in the middle class like one is trade and globalization has tended to to maybe take away some of their jobs but then automation is the other big thing and um automation works the same way it's good for high income people because you know i can work with data sets that are giant now that makes me more productive um for people who design robots who design those things they're very good at their jobs you know um on the flip side, like those things replace middle and lower income workers, and, and really middle income workers especially. Like the, the that that person you described, that was a good job. That job paid pretty well, had yeah. benefits. That was a good job, and they they were probably good at it and liked it, and were were skilled at it. Um, and this takes that away from them. Um, and you're right, even if they rebuilt the mill, it would be run by machines that are probably run by highly educated people. And so that's that's really hard. Too and 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 it's and that's why it's hard to undo. We're not going back, mm-hmm. you know. We're not going back to that world. And so, how do you, again, how do you prepare people for the future while also maybe trying to like help them deal with the kind of loss of the job now? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where something like the earned income tax credit could be helpful to kind of say, okay, well, if you have to go work a lower wage job, we're going to kind of help you out a little bit. But you know, it's 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 not not a not a very glamorous solution, honestly. Yeah, and in terms of like. How so? Income is, I think, one of those facts that would you say it's like relatively not easy, but it's still like it's more accessible to benchmark. But how would how is that like compared against things like it, which is something really hard to measure, like quality of living? And have we seen an increase in quality of living? Has uh, do you think the two are correlated? Like, I, I certainly think that like, yeah. That, so there's kind of like two maybe two ways to answer that question. One is like there's the issue of consumption. So like mm-hmm. as an economist. I don't think that like my, my income does not bring me happiness directly. Like I get happiness when I like buy food or go out to dinner or <laughs> go for, you know, buy stuff for my dog or whatever, you know, um, buy a car. Those things like bring me happiness. Um, and so there is a question of like, has, is consumption getting more unequal because we have more government support. There are certainly like government programs that have made things a little better than they would be otherwise. I think the most recent research suggests that like consumption inequality is getting more extreme too. Um, although I do think we're doing a better job of preventing poverty than we used to do. So there is, like, at the very bottom, I think there's been some improvement, and I think that that's good. I do think if you look at, like, broader indicators, there's evidence that quality of life is um, not great for certain groups of men, um, especially, like, high school-educated men. Um, And it's starting to spill over into women, I think. So if you look at, like, mortality, there's this thing called, like, deaths of despair. Have you heard of this? I have. I have. Have So, yeah, so (laughs) deaths of despair is, um, was coined by um, Angus um, uh, Case and Deaton, two two, um, actually married um, researchers, I believe. Um, And Anne Case and Angus Deaton, that's the name. So, like, they did this work showing that if you look at, like, high school educated um, individuals, so high school or less, so no bachelor's degree, 
that that group saw their mortality actually increase slightly over a pretty like long strand of time. People in their like 35 to mid 50s, like their mortality increased mostly due to drug overdoses and suicides. So death to despair is the idea that like, and so that kind of measure of that kind of measure of quality of life suggests like something's maybe up with that middle that middle Mm -hmm. group. Um, And so that's why I think some of the stuff in the in the book I think is important to think about like these people feel somehow left behind and that's manifesting itself in this 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 excess mortality that might not have happened otherwise and even the work in remain you mentioned like that that person probably feels like what they did wasn't as important because it went away right and and I, I don't know what that would be like if if like robots started teaching college classes or whatever <laughs> you know um, which I think we saw during COVID doesn't work great to have like, you know, remote college didn't work that well, you know, but like if they did that, I'd feel kind of bad cause that's like my job and yeah. I find like a lot of utility out of it and, and replacing that in my life would be kind of hard. I'd have to try to figure out something else to do. And so I don't know what that's like, but those kinds of like statistics kind of make me worry that like there's something else. It's not just the job. It's actually some kind of like feeling of like, Oh, th- I'm what, what am I really worth? You know, which isn't, which is a sad thought. So th- that's kind of, Unlike the, I think we've done a good job of kind of like holding up the bottom a little bit, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's great. But I think like that middle where there's been this stagnation is kind of, they kind of promised something else, and it's not really being delivered. So I, I don't know if that that answers your question, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, it, it does you any? Um, yeah. So while you were doing your research, it sounds like there were a lot of really heavy parts. Like, how did you remain optimistic? I mean, yeah, I I really hope that like teaching this stuff is like helping i want to make people aware and so when i teach my classes and and you know writing this book it took me like five years and i had no idea the entire time like whether anyone would ever read it right and so um you know i kept myself motivated by a like thinking okay no matter what i'm learning new stuff for my class i'm gonna make my class better or whatever you know um and two like hoping that if i make people aware of this they'll start to think about like ways to maybe like make it better so I think, like, for example, on the gender gap side, I think we really need to think about preschool. I think, like, having universal preschool would really help lessen the gender gap, which isn't what people usually think about, but, like, because it would make it easier for moms to work if they want to. Uh, It would make them not have to choose as much as they do. Now, if if they don't want to do universal pre-K, they could just stay at home with their kids. Mm -hmm. But I do think, like, women face a choice that, that is, in some ways not thrust on men for whatever reason i don't i don't you know exactly know why men don't make that choice as often but women are kind of forced to choose between career and 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 um and kind of kids at that exact moment because we don't have universal pre-k once kids are five they go to school but like there's this weird gap when kids are born to when they go to go to elementary school um and so that would help there and it would also help ease inequality and opportunity because preschool is like been shown to be the, the best way to help people kind of climb the economic ladder. A good preschool like matters a lot mm. later in life. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's probably really overlooked. Yeah. And so, yeah. So h- how I say optimistic is we're trying to remember, like, I don't think people know that most of the research shows that, like, you spend a dollar on preschool, like, you're going to save money in the long run. Those kids are going to have better jobs. The preschool yeah. is. Yeah. Preschool is no like, idea. there's like a, um, there's a famous economist named James Heckman. And um, if you want to, his website, I think, is called The Heckman Experience. He's a really, really great econometrician and a great economist. Also a really conservative guy. He's not some liberal person who, like, would, would, would espouse universal pre-K. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I doubt he really cares in that way about <laughs> it. But what he does care about is spending money wisely. And he thinks that, like, his research shows that if you spend money on good quality preschool, especially if that preschool has parental training, that, like, 
those kids do better in the long run in ways you wouldn't expect. They're like less likely to get arrested. They're more likely to work. They're less likely to act up in school. It doesn't really make them like academically better performing. What it does is just gets them used to interacting with people and kind of reduces certain kinds of behavior that are damaging later on. And so he's a big proponent of like really high quality pre-K. Actually, he would say also for prenatal care because that's those things matter more. We tend to focus like later in life, you know, we tend to think, oh, we should have good high schools. It's like pretty late at that point. (laughs) I mean, I think good high schools are important, but like, so when I try to keep myself optimistic, it's like, I want to make people aware of these things. I don't think people know that the black white wage gap has been stagnant for 40 years. I don't think Mm -hmm. that's common knowledge. And so like trying to make people aware of that, like this is, this is not like me making it up. I'll give you this data code. I'll show you what I did. (laughs) This is like just the way it is. And like, this should bother us. And we should try to think about like how to make it better. And so I think when I was writing it, I was just like, maybe somehow I'll get really lucky and someone will find this book and they'll, they'll learn something. Or maybe it'll get picked up by someone and a lot of people will read it or whatever. Um, and so that's kind of how I kept optimistic. Because it, is, it, is, it can be depressing, um, but I mean, it is the truth. So, so it's <laughs> kind of like, it's depressing, but it's like, look, I want people to know this so they can try to fix it. That's, yeah. I think, how I keep myself optimistic. How do you deal with like have you received any criticism so far and how do you deal with that even a if you haven't and how I, will you i mean a little bit you know i uh, the, the reviews on the on the you know amazon i've gotten you know six or seven at this point trying to get more you know people are i i, I sold my very first book through my advertising yesterday so that was a big moment for me so That's i've sold awesome. you know i'm selling books you know at a decent clip but like i really hadn't had much success like other than through my i, I write a blog called a progress list all one word dot org that like talks about inequality and I've sold books through there but kind of making some progress with sales but I had a reviewer that I don't think really read the book that was very <laughs> negative I've written op-eds before and gotten very negative um feedback you know I wrote a um, op-ed about social security and how important it is to fighting um the black white wealth gap so social security is a big equalizing force in terms of retirement wealth um if you think about social security as wealth which which we do in this work we did and um, people would write back and be like, well, they'd say things like, I got an email that was like, Oprah, Oprah's doing fine. Like, so what's the big deal? And it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, you get that kind of criticism. You just are like, that doesn't, that's not the point. I mean, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's that it's, it's just harder for, for black people than it is for white people because of some pretty basic stuff like discrimination and, and especially segregation. So like those things, it, it's, I, I try to. You know, I just try to recognize people come in with their own thoughts on it. If, if someone like criticized really like the methodology somehow, it was like, well, you ignored this kind of this kind of income, and and I, I that I would take more seriously and maybe feel feel bad about or want to really address, right? But if someone's gonna come at me with like, oh, well, I don't like this, you know, because uh, I think that Oprah made a lot of money or, or whatever they're gonna say, like that doesn't really bother me. <laughs> I mean, I just don't care because yeah, <laughs> it just fair. it just doesn't you know doesn't ring true with me. Um, and I guess, you know, being an academic, you get pretty used to criticism. I mean, I've, I've got 22 peer reviewed papers and I've gotten, you know, that many that have also been rejected and you get some pretty nasty like (laughs) feedback. And so you kind of get used to it and you just, you get thick skin, I guess. So that's kind of how, how I'll deal with it. And, you know, tying it back to a Boston college student listening to this and then hopefully reading your book after and yeah. What would you recommend to them? I mean, I think like the big thing is, it, you know, if you're if you're learning, if you're thinking about like how can I how can I make sure that if you're, you can think about it in two ways, right? If you're thinking, what can I take away as far as skills that I want to have that um, that are going to help me avoid being on the wrong side of inequality? If that's kind of what you're asking, mm-hmm. 
then you know what I what I tell my people I advise is like first of all you you do need to and this is like people advice people don't want to take sometimes you need to like what you do yeah. um, the world is very competitive um, and that's totally fine and everyone here is very smart and capable but like if you don't like what you do you won't go the extra mile so you guys are doing this podcast like that's really cool you must like it right like um yes and um and so like taking that whatever it is you like about it communication or getting information out and making that part of your job would be smart because you're willing to do it for free now right i assume you know yeah. so it's like yeah. so like that's a good sign that you're willing to kind of um work at it and 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 i think that's great if someone came to me and was like i really want to be a stand-up comic i would say yeah you try it because like if you like it you should do it if it doesn't work out you'll know and you can do something else right yeah and so, like, that's one thing is do what you like. And the other thing is, like, acquire skills that aren't really easy to replace or, or that a lot of people don't have. So, like, working with data and learning about econometrics, I, I think it's really important because, you know, a computer can run a regression, obviously, but it can't tell you what to think about or whether you did it right or whatever. So, like, that skill, I think, is something that we're a long way from computers being able to, like, do well. Um, that's thing number two is like acquire skills that are going to let you kind of interact with technology but not be replaced by it um, and the third thing is um, I think the third thing is like think about what you like that other people don't this is why like anyone who likes math I'm like you should major in math you know people think like what job will I get I'm like math's always in demand and take you know, do, do math and do data do data stuff with math and and, um, and and think about like what's low supply, right? Supply and demand. If you can do something, you happen to like something that's in low supply, like focus on that. So those are yeah. three pieces of advice I give. And then as far as just like your own lives, like thinking about the fact that, you know, the book I talk a lot of, it's not, you know, the person in Maine, uh, go back to that example. It's like, they didn't know that was gonna happen. Yeah. Like, it's not like they were like lazy or don't wanna work or whatever. And, and you know, maybe they didn't go to college because they weren't aware of the opportunity or because they needed to work at age 18 or because whatever. But, like, probably isn't their fault that, like, this happened. Like, they didn't ask to be replaced, and they didn't, you know, they didn't probably enforce the policy. And, and trying to be a little empathetic, maybe, to people, you 100%. know, and not, not, so, not so judgmental about, like, oh, why didn't you get a college education? That's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so I think, like, that's the other part of it, maybe, as far as just people's lives. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that was really helpful, especially yeah. as we delve into recruiting and thinking about what we want to do yeah. in the future. I know. It's, it's a big it, – no, it's – um, I, 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 it's like – it sounds a little Pollyannish to be like, do something you like, but I happen to, like, think it's also the best way to, like, do something well yeah. is to, like, kind of – to lean into what you do like to do. Perfect. Well, thank you. Yeah, no uh, problem. Is there anything else? Uh, I think that we've covered a lot of bases. Talked yeah. about the book. No, I think that was great. I think the book, you know, if you want to find it, it's on uh, Amazon. I, you can buy it as a Kindle or a paperback. Mm -hmm. If you can't afford it, you can always email me because I believe in equality, and uh, <laughs> I will send you a Word doc. But if you can buy it, please do. It would be awesome. Perfect. Well, thank yeah. you very much. Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, that's that. All right. Thanks. Well, that's all, folks. We hope you learned a little bit more about inequality in the United States and consider checking out his book on Amazon, once again, that's the six facts that matter, understanding inequality in the United States. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes in the future with me, Martin, and other members of the Boston College Economics Association eBoard. Thank you for listening.